Lord, we just praise you and thank you again for your control over everything in this world. Uh, we wake up this morning and and outside the walls of our home, we, we really don't know what's going on, but we have a clue if we read the news or um, hear reports, and, and yet um, your word tells us that you hold everything by the word of your mouth, and, and so there is not uh, one rogue molecule uh, we take comfort in that, especially when we see diseases and, and death and, and illness. And, and we know all of this, everything is, is just straight lining towards uh, your glory and, and ultimately our good. Thank you for allowing us to, to gather together corporately and to open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Did anybody else need a, a handout? Everyone got one? Okay. Does everybody have a Bible? If someone doesn't need a Bible, I believe we have extras in the back. Everyone's good? Oh, on the side now. Okay. Who here would be able to, when, when you hear the word devotion or you're devoted to something, right? Someone's devoted. What, what comes to your mind? Okay, loyalty, yeah. Yeah, committed, okay. Yeah, what sorts of uh, um, activities or uh, what sorts of um, things come to your mind that people are devoted to? Yeah. Family, yeah. Family. School, okay, yeah, we're, we can be devoted to school, we can be devoted to family or, or loyal, yeah, work, uh-huh, yeah, religion, yeah, 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 uh, uh, Merriam-Webster defines it as e either a religious fervor, uh, the act of dedicating something to a cause or activity, and even using the synonym dedicated or loyal, um, so we gave a lot of great examples, right? Uh, we could ask, you know, is attending church, is, is, is there devotion there? I would say so. What about health? Are people devoted to health? Yeah. Yeah, apparently there are people in the world, people who can afford this, who spend over a million dollars just on their bodies. The care of their bodies, nutrition, gyms. That's pretty devoted, right? What about sports involvement? People are pretty devoted to that, right? Apparently, the, the global sports market value in 2020 was $388 billion. So the entire world, right? The sports value is 388. And they're projecting that to be $600 billion in just two years. The NFL alone made $18 billion just last year, Right? They made $18 billion. And the city of Los Angeles spent $5 billion on their new stadium. $5 billion. That sounds like they're really devoted to sports, right? And you guys were, someone said work. People are devoted to work, right? I have a coworker right now. He's, he's working six days a week, 10-hour shifts, and he's been doing that since September. He's 
pretty devoted to his work, right? And all of this sounds like devotion, right? Again, it's a, a religious fervor, the act of, of dedicating something to a cause or, or an activity. And to simplify it, we could just say this, this person or, or you, right, is dedicated, you're dedicated to something or to someone. Right? There's always an object of devotion. Now, at one point or another, everyone in here has often misplaced that devotion. Right? The devotion ought to be to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. But at one point, right, we may have put that devotion into something or someone in an idolatrous way. And that can be a misplaced devotion, not just because it's, it's rejecting God and it's rejecting the gospel, but it's misplaced because it's, there, it's susceptible. It's, 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 it's often associated with failure to it. And how do I know that? You could simplify this by saying there's shortcomings and there's death, right? Whatever you're looking to or someone outside of Christ, there's going to be a shortcoming, right? There's that person is either, either, is either going to fail you, right, or you're going to see that person sin. Or let's say it's health, right? The athlete who spends over a million dollars in health his body is ultimately going to fail him. He, that individual probably had COVID or, or probably got sick, and that million dollars didn't do anything in that moment, right? The, the, the $5 billion stadium in LA, is that not susceptible to an earthquake in California, right? So there's shortcomings, right? And then there's death, right? Whatever person or 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 the person of, of your affection or devotion, right, is, is ultimately going to die. Ultimately, right? So as, you're, as we're getting into John 2, the question is, to what or to whom are you devoted? Or you could say, what captures your attention and beliefs? What, what fascinates you? What locks your eyes onto that something or someone? If you have your Bibles, please open to John 2. And this morning, we'll be in John 2, and we'll be beginning in, in verse 13. And here in this gospel, John is going to argue that, that a person and this person's work ought to be the object of your devotion Namely, Jesus Christ needs to be the object of your devotion, the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Again, it's Jesus Christ and his work, or it's something that's going to fail or have death associated with it. And in John 2, 13 through 22, we're going to see two necessary responses to Jesus Christ. And these are requirements. These are, these, are, these are necessary for you, especially if you are outside of Christ. I, 
what John is going to do is he's going to uphold Jesus for you to look at and to marvel and to see every other thing you've been devoted to as, as nothing in comparison. He wants you to be captured. He wants you to be marveling at Jesus Christ and his work. And this is a great passage to turn to. And so the first necessary response to Jesus Christ is you are to behold the devotion of Jesus. Behold, or, or you could say, pay attention. Right? Just as you, if, if I flashed a diamond in front of your eye, you wouldn't look at it and say, oh, nice diamond, and then walk away. You would stop and you would pay attention. You would look at all the angles, right? This is what John wants you to do. He, he wants you to pay attention. He wants you to behold. So verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near. That's the context. That, that's where we're at in the historical narrative of Jesus. This would be the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John 6 and then John 12 will tell you there's two more Passovers. And historically, we know Jesus' ministry was about three years. So this, this would be the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, which means he's, he's really not known, right? He has his disciples. He's had John the Baptist proclaim about him, but, but not too many people know about him. So here's the historical context. Again, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near. What is the Passover? Who would like to answer that? I want to hear from you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and so he said, he, he, he said he, the angel passed by the Israelites' houses, right? But what signaled to the angel Lord to pass by, to pass over? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the angel Lord passed over the house, right, because he saw the blood of an innocent animal slain, and then he was going to slay the firstborn of the Egyptian families, right? And so that's the primary purpose. And, and what's, what's really interesting is, is the very first mention of the Passover in Exodus, it's called the Passover of the Lord or Passover of Yahweh. And then in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's the Passover to the Lord. It's his Passover. And as we start to read the Gospel of John, or if you were to continue past chapter 2, the reader is not going to get past Jesus' devotion to God the Father. He's repeatedly, he's religiously devoted and convinced of his love for the Father. And like every other Israelite at this time, he too traveled to celebrate the Passover. Again, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, what you're going to want to do is start paying attention, right? Behold Jesus Christ. Behold the devotion of Jesus Christ. And, and it begins with this practical devotion, and you say, well, what's so practical about Jesus traveling up to Jerusalem for a, a feast? I, I go to church every week, and no one's making a big fuss about that. 
true, you, you may go to church every weekend, right? But, but let's remember the, the, the context, the, the person of Jesus. We're only in chapter 2, so we've, we've kind of parachuted into this passage. Um, but, if, but if we were, go back to chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open and, and just turn one page to the left, let's remember some of the titles that are assigned to Jesus. Go to chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First title, Jesus is God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Second title, creator. Verse 4, in him was life. Third title, source of life. Look now at verse 14. God did not stay in his heavenly courts, but look what he did. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another title, he's the God-man. Go to chapter 1, verse 29. Here's John the Baptist next to the Jordan baptizing, and, and all of a sudden he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, or again, pay attention. Look at the title. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God. Verse 34. I myself have seen, this is John the Baptist talking, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is the Son of God. And verse 49 of chapter 1. Nathanael answered him, Nathanael answered Jesus and, and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, behold the devotion of Jesus, right? Pay attention. His devotion is practical. Think about this. God came to his city, right, with his people, He's heading towards his temple for his Passover. So attendance is not beneath him to skip out. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, it might sound strange for John only to note Jesus' name. No, we know that Jesus is not alone. Just look back one verse prior, chapter 2, verse 12. After this, so this would be after the wedding in Cana where he turned the, the, water, the, wine, the water into wine. He went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. So they wouldn't have been too far from Jerusalem. And so they would have all been together. But John wants you to pay attention, right? He wants your focus to be on Jesus. Now, this would have been incredible, right? The disciples and his family traveling with the God-man. I mean, think about the questions that you would have asked. Think about the time spent with Jesus, the traveling, right? Think about when you're with Pastor Roy and you have alone time, right? You're asking him questions and you're, you're wanting to draw out of him. Well, well, think about the disciples who have the king of Israel with them. Right? The God-man. 
what would they have asked? What questions must have flooded Jesus in light of, of the Passover? And all of that too, right? The, 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 the surroundings of Jerusalem would have been just exciting. There would have been this buzz. You know, this is not like Phoenix where the Super Bowl comes and, and, you, and, and we can kind of hear murmurings and, and we know that the traffic gets, gets really backed up. This little tiny city would have been packed with people. So you have this religious festival and then you have Jesus with you and, and you're traveling. And then as they get to the temple, right, you, you're hoping for this celebration that, that the king of Israel has made his way to the temple. Maybe they'd get there and they'd find them, everyone would be praying for the Messiah's arrival, right? Maybe they would be hoping for the arrival of their king. Maybe there'd be joy with a mixture of sobriety in just one place, just filling the atmosphere of the temple. Jesus made it to Jerusalem, and eventually Jesus walked into the temple. But he didn't find what you would expect. Look at verse 14. And he found, the he being Jesus, Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. Now, this temple is Herod the Great's temple. Uh, this temple was historically one of, one of the grandest, just most marvelous temples in, in pretty much all of human history. The entire foundation was about 30 soccer fields. So I don't know if the grass field out there was a regulation soccer field, uh, was it? You think so? Oh. So imagine a real soccer field then, 30 of those. That's where the, the temple sat. So it was this temple on this giant foundation, right? And you have this temple, and, and, it, and think of these concentric circles, right? In the middle would be the Holy of Holies, and then outside of that would be where the priests could enter, and outside of that there's walls and, and Levites could enter, and outside of that, Jewish males could enter. And then even outside of that, only women could enter into that up until that point. And then beyond that, you have the Gentiles court, the court of the Gentiles. So, so this is where Jesus would have found this, right? A, a, a large 35-acre court known as the court of the Gentiles. And this area could hold up to 75,000 people. It was, it was gigantic, right? The core of the Gentiles was the only place the temple provided worship for these non-Israelites. And although the Passover was a Jewish celebration, Gentiles could come and, and worship, right? They could come and they could pray and, and they could rejoice and, and they could meditate and, and think about God, the Savior, maybe not of them being in Israel, but, but, but God providing a sacrifice for the atonement of their sins, and, and Gentiles could come and, and worship. And yet, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. Right? He would have seen animal booths set up for the sale of oxen and sheep, Think about it, he would have smelled, right, the smell, the stench of, of animal urine next week, right? 
hay everywhere and just a, a ruckus in there. Not a place for worship. One commentator says, and you might be thinking, well, how did he even get in there? Well, the selling of these animals used to occur outside of the temple, and it would help people who are traveling from far away to purchase an animal and then bring to for a sacrifice. And we don't know how it actually ended up being inside the core of the Gentiles, but nonetheless, it occupied a space that that was meant for worship. Jesus not only found first century drive through animal markets, but notice his second discovery in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, and money changers seated at their tables. Now, the money changer was pretty much a first century bank of the temple. So think like an ATM or a, a bank teller. Um, Israelites, again, who are coming from all over the nation, uh, all other, other nations who might have different currency, need to exchange their currency for the common currency. And, and so they would make the transaction, and they would also pay the temple tax. That temple tax would go for, towards uh, reconstruction of the temple. Um, if the money gatherers may, maybe have overcharged, uh, we don't know, but, but that's what Jesus found. So again, behold, pay attention to the devotion of Jesus. And, and not only is his devotion practical, but we're seeing his devotion is pure, right? Look at verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords. Right? You can think of a, of a whip or a long rope of cords. Verse 15, he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, before you either accuse Jesus of animal cruelty or attribute real manliness to, to Jesus' actions, uh, let, let's just pause for a moment, um, right? Notice his pure devotion is, is all-powerful, right? Look again at verse 15. He drove or he expelled or he, he caused an exit. Right? Notice the God-man. He drove them all. Again, remember, this, this is a giant courtyard, right? 35 acres, enough animals to supply worshipers, right? a place that could hold about 75,000 people, and it says he drove all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. all-powerful and gentle. None were hurt. No one was injured. What authority, what power, what care. He accomplished this, and, and, and without even causing a riot, or without even inviting the, the military police, the Roman police would have been standing above them, overlooking the court of the Gentiles, and yet he did this in such a way that he didn't cause harm. He didn't hurt anybody. And he caused them all to go out. A man once, I heard about this man who carried a, a 1,400 log on his back for five steps. That's pretty incredible, huh? This guy named Kevin Plummer, I mean Kevin Fast, 
once pulled an airplane weighing, I had to double check, make sure it wasn't Kevin Plummer. Kevin Fast once pulled an airplane weighing over 4,000 pounds. I know you think that's Mr. Mr. Plummer, but it says Kevin Fast. And finally, a gentleman once completed 60 repetitions of 220 pounds with his teeth. <laughs> so that's incredible, right? But, but it, fails, it, it pales in comparison, right, to what we see Jesus doing, right? There would have been hundreds of animals. I mean, think about standing next to an, a one ox yourself and trying to get that thing to move, right? And the text doesn't even say that Jesus used these cords to whip them. It simply says he made and he drove. He caused all the animals to exit. Wow. Behold, right? Pay attention. That's what John wants you to do. Pay attention to Jesus's devotion. It's pure Verse 15, the end of verse 15, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place or, or a house of business. Wow. He wasn't even sinfully angry or arrogant made a declaration, and it was pure, and it was righteous. What a contrast between you and I, huh? When someone offends the object of our devotion, we have got it up to here, right? We walk in somewhere, and someone's not doing the right thing, and in our head, we're just thinking, what an idiot. Why can't they get their act together? Or look at this person reading this version of the Bible, or this person who's wearing these things, and we get all angry because the object of our devotion is we're offended, and, and yet Jesus, just pure devotion, right? How often do you guys ponder the person of Jesus and, and his reactions? What a marvelous stretch of thought that might stretch together when we take the time away to just consider how Jesus responds. What a savior. Again, the temple was not a place for business. We, we know that. And although known as Herod the Great's temple, the temple did not belong to Herod, right? The temple and everything associated with it belonged to God. And Jesus knew this. His devotion is pure. And again, Jesus' devotion is not about himself. Again, notice verse 16. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Right? The Passover was not to be some commercialized event like the Super Bowl. You know, the leaders getting together. Hey, guys, it's that year coming around and and let's really do it up this year, and, and let's, let's make some profit. You know, we've been going all these years without making any money. You know, the people won't even know. Let, let's just start selling these oxen and sheep in the core of the Gentiles. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're not even God's people. Let, let's just put it there. 
he got me thinking, what, what motivated Jesus? Think about the context, right? Jesus traveling to Jerusalem with his family and his new disciples, right? The Passover is near, and almost every worshiper of the Lord would have been there. Again, in the city limits, it, there would have been this buzz. It's the Passover. He comes to the temple. He finds impure devotion. And considering the ongoing practice of animal sales and, and possible thievery, no one said anything, right? No one. Did, did you guys catch that as I was reading it, right? Business as usual kept the Passover festivities alive, right? I mean, what were, what, you got to think, what was Jesus' family thinking? What were they thinking? How, how did his new disciples just process everything that was just going on? Where were the priests to regulate pure worship? And why weren't these disciples alongside their king and, and why doesn't John say Jesus and the disciples drove them all out? Other than standing silent, the disciples did do something, and that something is namely the word of God hit their memory banks. Look down at verse 17. His disciples, watching everything that's going on, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I, I get this. <laughs> I mean, I remember being a child, and, and man, when my parents would pray in a restaurant, oh, just shivers on the inside. You know, not wanting to be seen by anybody praying, you know, because my parents loved the Lord, and yet, oh, it's embarrassing, right? And then as you get older, you... Again, you go to the restaurant, you look around before you pray, and it's a quick prayer. don't want anybody to see you. Often our devotion is petty, it's, it's insecure, and follows popularity. And if it's starting to feel like anything you're devoted to is, is really just paling in comparison, and, and, and maybe there's some sort of offense that's good, right? Again, John wants your eyes to not be on whatever you're devoted to, whatever captures your attention. He wants your eyes to be on Christ, right? And Jesus' devotion was for his father and his father's house. Again, verse 17, his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his devotion was practical, it was pure, and, and finally we read that Jesus' devotion was prophesied. In verse 17, does anybody have it in all caps? Yeah. If you have it in all caps, what does that typically mean? That he's, John's screaming at you like, hey, get the point. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Did you guys know that? Yeah, so if you see it, if your Bible has a, a text that's in all caps, it's quoting an, an Old Testament passage. Uh, if you don't have that, uh, maybe your, your uh, 
side column reference will uh, will will annotate that. If you don't have anything like my, my wife's Bible doesn't have that, she'll have to do it herself. Um, so here, this uh, is from Psalm sixty nine nine. So let's turn there. Let's turn to Psalm sixty nine. Keep your hand in John two. And we'll start in verse 5. Um, pretty much this psalm, the psalmist is suffering, right? And, and as we'll read, right, the psalmist is going to be suffering for a particular reason. So we'll start in verse 5. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll start in verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. So there's someone that is antagonizing the psalmist. Yet the psalmist says, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. So being forced to restore something he, he didn't even steal. Verse 5. Half time. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, verse 5. Now here he doesn't claim innocence. He says, oh God, it is you who knows my folly. And my wrongs are not hidden from you. So again, he's not stating sinlessness, but whatever these people have against him, he's saying, Lord, you, you know my faults, and, and this is not it. What they're accusing me is, is not a fault they should be accusing me of. Now, verse 6, he's, he's thinking about his people, right? And the effect that might have on them. Verse 6, may those who wait for you Right? Other believers, may those who wait for you be not ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me. And good question asked is, well, why? Why, why would they be, psalmist, why would someone be ashamed through you? Why would they be dishonored? You're the one who seems to be getting attacked. Verse 7, because... Here, here's the reason why. For your sake, your sake, O Lord, I have borne reproach. I've suffered. Dishonor has covered my face. Maybe it's only stuck to him and, and he's borne this reproach and he suffered and, and hopefully it hasn't affected anybody else. Look at verse 8. I have become estranged from my brother's and an alien to my mother's sons. So because of the psalmist's suffering, his family's looking at him, and, and they don't want anything to do with him. Whatever's happening to him, the psalmist's family says, we don't want anything to do with that. It's like he's a, a foreigner. And you say, why? why? Why would his own family respond that way? And here's where John picks up in John 2. Look at verse 9. Here's the reason why. For zeal for your house has consumed me. A zeal, a devotion for the house of Yahweh, right, where the Lord would reside. A love, a zeal for the Lord in his house. It's consumed the psalmist. And this is why 
his brothers are considering him to be an alien, to, to consider him estranged or the, the bad relationships. Look at verse 9, the end of verse 9. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Man, unjust suffering. And now he's asking and praying that, that, that it would not affect others, and yet it's, it's affecting those close to him, and they don't want anything to do with him, and it's because of his zeal, his devotion to the Lord. Go back to John 2. This is how John can write what the disciples remembered. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And Psalm 69, verse 9, would have pierced the disciples' conscience. At this very moment, Jesus' family and disciples, I don't know, would, would they have been internally raging at Christ at that moment, just like the psalmist's family, right? Would they have been saying, what, what an embarrassment. What is he doing? Why is he acting like this? Yes, the ritual rites, have, they've gone overboard, but Jesus, it seems like you've gone past the line. What are you doing? Again, I believe this is why John wants us to, to focus, right, for our, our attentions to be captured by Jesus. Maybe the true worshipers of the Lord, right, maybe even the disciples who were, who were getting ready for Passover, Maybe they disdained those reckless practices in the outer courts, right? Maybe that was a thing. And, and man, we don't know how long this was happening up until this year, right? Maybe they knew it was something that was happening. And, and internally, they would have thought, oh, that's not something we like. And, and we're so excited to worship the Lord. However, again, remember, notice how John kept going back to Christ, Right? He was the action shot. He was the main character. He was devoted. And he was the only one devoted to his heavenly father, even when it cost him, right? Sports players sit out games due to prevention of injury or, or even an increase in pay. Artists decline gigs unless the money makes sense. Even us as parents, we, we're repeat offenders of serving our conveniences. Often, whatever we put our efforts and trust in, we, sure, we make sure it's going to bring back ultimate benefit. Devotion to something or someone that makes us look good, sign me up, right? But Christ, right? Behold, pay attention to Christ, he was devoted to his father, and it was practical. And this practical devotion then played out in a pure devotion that didn't consider the cost, right? This display of devotion, did it, it didn't win him any awards, and nobody was applying and saying, yes, finally. Instead, it brought reproach upon him, and it produced embarrassment and unbelief in the hearts of the disciples, Now, there is a necessary response on your part. 
Again, John is holding out a diamond for you to, to not merely glance at and say, wow, neat, right? It's not for entertainment. This is, this is not entertainment time, but he wants to. He's pleading with you, behold, pay attention to Christ. So the first necessary response to Jesus Christ is, Behold, the devotion of Jesus, right? Pay attention. The second, the second necessary response to Jesus Christ is, is that you believe the re- declaration of resurrection. John wants you to believe the declaration of, of a resurrection. Earlier, we saw a lack of involvement by authority, right, during the temple clearing. Neither the Levitical priesthood or the Roman uh, police intervened. So before Jesus' act of, of devotion, right, there would have been loud noises, strong smells that, right, that filled the courts. Just, just, again, business as usual. Now, right after this, after verse 16, stunned faces, right, silent lips, and just screaming hearts inside on these open floors would anybody talk let's say one of you were in a position of leadership what what would you say let's pretend you're in a leader in a leadership position and 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 you're watching this go on what what would be the what should be the response by the people No, it's hard, right? That's exactly why everyone else was silent, because they're just trying to figure out what in the world just happened. I get that. <laughs> Surely somebody should admit, right, or humbly come and say, wow, we've been so wrong. Wow. Well, let's find out what somebody does say. Verse 18. The, do, the Jews then said, or you could say answered or, or responded, and you're saying answer, nobody said anything. Well, what Jesus just did required the response. The Jews then said or answered or responded to him, uh, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, the Apostle John employs this term Jews. It's, it's not that every single Jew came up to Jesus and said, what sign do you show us for your authority for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign? And then everybody's asking him, and there's this line, and by, you know, hour five, it, it stops. No, it was the leadership. So, so when, in the book of John, when you read the Jews, it's, it's the leadership. And, and more often than not, it's, it's leadership who are opposed to Jesus. Now, now, again, we don't have to go very far past this point to, to realize that, that they're not going to like this guy, right? They're not, going to very, they're not going to appreciate Jesus. And so here's the spiritual leaders, right? The spiritual leaders who, who God designated, who were to be the, the teachers of God's word to God's people, and they were to model God's word before God's people. And here's what they said, right? 
Again, these would have been students. These would have been scholars of the Old Testament. If Psalm 69.9 flooded the disciples' memory, what sort of scripture do you think testified to these Jewish leaders' hearts? Right? Right. Whatever passage of God's word pierced their conscience was then quickly suppressed. Seeing his actions as a direct threat to their lifestyle and authority, the Jews responded just like any other insecure leader, a defiant demand for authority. They say, what sign do you, come on, what sign do you show us? Is your authority for, for doing these things. Now that might be an interesting request. You're thinking a sign. Maybe you're thinking even like, wasn't that enough a sign? Well, let's take, let's take something, let's take a devoted act right on a really small scale. So, Let's say I'm, I'm playing with a Rubik's Cube, right? Not one of my favorites, but I'll, I'll play, and right, I'm colorblind and really not good hand-eye coordination, and so I'm messing with a Rubik's Cube, and, and someone comes in, maybe like Josiah comes in, and he sees me making a, making a fool of myself, and he says, stop making the Rubik's Cube a cube of toddlers. And then he shows me how to play the Rubik's Cube, and I say, wow, thanks. Not really offended. It's just a Rubik's Cube for me, and I'll play it. Okay, let's start turning up the intensity, all right? Now let's, let's, I love in and out right? Number one in my heart, I don't know if I mention it every sermon or not, right? I love in and out but secretly, right? I don't think I've told this to anybody. Secretly, I, I know it's not the best burger, right? It's, it's my favorite, but I know it's not the best, right? Um, so let's say one of you guys come in, and, and, and then, and then you, you tell me that I'm wrong, right? And, and I know you're right, but, you know, I'm unwilling to budge from my stance, so I, so I, I hold my stance, and, and I say, how can you prove that, you know, fill in the blank is, is better than in and out Again, strong preference, but still going to make you work to convince me that uh, out loud that in and outs better or uh, fill in the blanks better than in and out. Well, we'll think now about the temple worship in John 2, right? These Jews are painstakingly religious, right? They are intensely devoted. The, they have ingrained beliefs and practices that are lived out for years, decades, right? Not only are they devoted to this lifestyle, but they even have a position of leadership. So here comes this biblical demonstration of devotion to the Lord, right? Jesus comes, and it confronts their unbiblical practices, and it's tied to an unhealthy leadership. That's just a recipe for disaster, right? Blind and a refusal to acknowledge the clearing of the temple, they defiantly demand another sign. Again, look at the text. Verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Again, as you're reading the Gospels, and it's great to just pause at these moments 
and to almost consider what Jesus could have said, right? He could have said, I am the Lord who you bring these unhealthy and unloving worship practices to, right? He could have declared to them. He, he could have simply said, I am. And just like that declaration in John 20, everyone falls down. Just the word of his mouth floored everyone with a simple answer to their question when he said, I am. He, he could have said that, right? They defiantly demand a, a, a sign for authority, and he instead provides this radical prophecy. Look, look down at the text, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. If Jesus' family and disciples were inwardly humiliated and outwardly shaking in their pants, Jesus' answer may have momentarily popped the balloon of any messianic hope, right? Again, <laughs> screaming, what are you saying? And as we read soon, the, the Jesus' disciples, they, they didn't believe him. Everyone heard this statement, and no one believed him. Yet, we've got to ask the question, did they have a legitimate reason? Look back at John 1. Again, we, we read over the titles, right? And they didn't have John 1 to read, but Look at verse 38. They spent time with him, and Jesus turned and saw them, the disciples following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Again, they wouldn't have said, Jesus, you go to your room, we'll go to our room, we've had a long day's work, let's just get our rest. No, they would have been peppering him with questions, right? The greatest teacher of all time, God himself, the communicator of the Old Testament, in there, in the same room with them, answering every question. And then they go and they spread and they tell their family members, right? They tell Peter, and then they get to Nathaniel, so turn the page if, if you happen to have a Bible like mine, Ryan. <laughs> All right, verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, oh, sorry, to Philip, so verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, hey, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So they knew their Old Testament. They're saying, we found him. When you read your Old Testament, this is him. Follow me. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. So verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And so Nathanael said, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I heard about you. 
Anybody have that translation? No. It says, I saw you. He didn't hear about him. He, he saw him. He wasn't in the vicinity. He says, because I'm not omniscient, I knew where you were because I saw you. And look at Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel answered him, verse 49, and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are Yahweh. You are the Messiah, the promised one. So they had all that time. And then, and then they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem, spending more time with him, hearing and answering the questions, right? And back to chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Again, there would have just been silence at this prophecy. And the Jews, probably irate, irate, probably respond how you and I might respond. You know, the Jewish leaders, instead of recalling every Old Testament miracle to mind as to the potential validity of this obvious man sent from God, they, they all of a sudden switch from spiritual leaders to history teachers, right? They, they, they switch the caps, and, and, and maybe some science and objective reality will, will knock Jesus in the head and, and get him to think clearly. You think that's going to work? So here's what they said, verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, concerning the historical construction of Herod the Great's temple, the Jews were correct, right? Up until that point, it it did take 46 years. And then for the next 20 plus years, then the temple, the entire temple was finished. So no wonder the Jews cite history on their side, right? This temple, and again, this temple was a massive structure. Again, total of 30 football fields. Some of the foundation stones were over 600 tons in weight. The the main temple was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 60 feet high. Of course they're going to cite history, right? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it in three days? Not only are you insane, Jesus, but, but, but your solution is, is not good, right? We are the authority. We like how everything's going on already. Stop telling us what to do. We're in charge, and we're doing just fine. But were they? Again, no doubt the disciples and family members would have been Monday morning quarterbacking from the sidelines and, and thinking about the, the 46 years. And although the argument is logical from their standpoint, again, did anyone have the grounds to rightfully question Jesus? Guys, you and I do this all the time. We too put on our History Channel hats when God speaks to us through his word, right? We read a clear command and immediately then scan the files for debate. How can I do this when last week... 
You expect me to believe you in this relationship when it's been 46 weeks this person has been on my case? Things will never change. Therefore, I don't understand how you expect me to. How could God ever love me when a family member or, or friend treats me this way? Right? We use history on our side to, to argue against God. Instead of putting our faith in the Lord and, and his word, then we suddenly become an expert in reality. God's reality, nonetheless. Do you try to remind God of history? Does that sound like you? Doubting that he is the creator of history when you read his word? Again, Jesus, again, could have destroyed the temple by the word of his mouth, right? He created everything. He sustains everything. We read in chapter one, he is the life of everything. That's good. And the very breath of the Jews who spoke in that moment were only able to keep breathing in and out because he did not destroy them. So as absurd as that might sound to us, right, what does the next expression do to your senses? Verse 21 but he was speaking of a temple of his body. Right. Destruction of a temple, okay, that, that happened, but, but a body? The resurrection of a body? Again, this is why John wants you to believe in the resurrection, because everything that you may put your hope or trust in the object is going to fail. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to get diseases, and ultimately it's going to die. But Christ will not die. He did die, and then he was resurrected. He prophesied it, and it came true. You must believe the resurrection, because nobody else was. And again, here, when we go back to verse 21, then John omits the rest of the conversation. It, you want to know what, what keeps going on. But he doesn't need to record Jesus' response. This declaration of resurrection was authoritative enough. They asked for a sign, and he gave them one. And no, he didn't demonstrate that sign on the spot. He would do that later, right? But why didn't they ask him to elaborate? The statement was out of the world, no doubt, right? However, the statement was not unclear. They should have probed him, right? They should have asked questions, as they're using this historical data, they should have said, I, I don't want to get it. Help me to understand. Instead, unbelief filled their hearts. And I say unbelief because not even his disciples believed him at that moment. Notice the post-resurrection belief of the disciples, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, so, so now John's looking past this point, and, and so the resurrection occurred, and he's saying when this happened... Look down at 22. His disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. His disciples rightly confessed his lordship and spent time with him during this Passover. And the disciples may not have brought up the 46 years out loud, but no doubt, some sort of excuse or, 
unbelief was, was railing in their heart. So why is the belief in the resurrection a necessary response? Because a death occurred. The death of a sinless lamb. There's a historian by the name of Josephus who recorded that a quarter of a million lambs would have been sacrificed during this time. 25, 100,000 stained, contaminated, sin-cursed lambs slaughtered every year, requiring the need for more sacrifices every year. Just that trip to Jerusalem where you're going to have to buy your oxen and sheep there and you're going to have to provide your lamb and in, internally you know this lamb is not perfect because I took care of him. We walked all this way and, and you know you don't have a perfect lamb and yet you're, you would have been trusting the Lord that he would forgive. But John is saying there is a perfect lamb and, and you need to behold him. You need to pay attention to Jesus. You need to believe the resurrection because everything else is going to fail or it's going to die or you're going to fail yourself and yet Christ is magnificent and John is putting him there for you to believe that. You're here today with the opportunity to believe. Isn't that incredible? And it all happened because of the resurrection, right? You must believe that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your kindness and how you delayed your judgment on each and every one of us. Father, I pray for those who, who are not beholding Jesus, who are not believing the resurrection right now in this room, who are instead just thinking about what they're going to do today, later on, what homework they have due that's week, what sports event they need to get ready for. And Father, I understand the fears that they have, and I understand how scary and uncertain those, those events may be, and, and it seems like everything that happens in, in the reality we're living is 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 exactly how it should go, but, but you've provided a better way. You've provided a lamb that we can entrust ourselves to who isn't angry anymore at us when we put our trust in him. He's not repugnant at us and, and offended by us, but when we're forgiven and when we're accepted as a child of God, you welcome us because of him. And you're not ashamed of us. Father, forgive us for when we are ashamed of Christ and ashamed of you. Thank you for this text and uh, for what a, what a mighty Savior Jesus Christ is. Yes, all of this in his name. Amen. You are dismissed.